Hey everybody, welcome to episode 60 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. As many of you know, much of Southern California is or has been on fire. It did impact us at Butcherbird Studios. Erica and I were in an evacuation zone, as was Butcherbird's Travis Stevens. But that fire has burned out, been contained, and we have all returned to our homes with no ill effects, thankfully. The location where this episode was recorded was in Little Tahunga Canyon, and it appears that that exact spot has probably burned at this point in time. And the Thomas Fire raging through Ventura is still burning and potentially impacting past guests and friends of this show. So we wish them and everyone else affected the best. On today's show, we will be speaking with outdoor renaissance woman, Amanda Kraft. We joke a lot about her padding her resume throughout this episode, but to give you a sense of what that resume does include, she is a canyoneer, equestrian, dive master, stunt repeller, paraglider, climber, mountaineer, exotic animal caretaker, airsoft gamer, caver, and all-around rad person. This show is not four hours long, so we will not be discussing all of those topics, but we do cover quite a few of them. But worry not, we do discuss bloodsickles and the great inspiration that is The Rescuers Down Under. craft i'm 31 and i'm an outdoor enthusiast and we're out here with my dog tank who's four and also an outdoor enthusiast yeah tell us where we are located because you who live all the way up in bakersfield chose very nicely a location 20 minutes from my house which holds some sort of interest to your history so tell everybody where we're sitting right now and why this has any kind of historical significance to your life we're out on a fire road in little tahunga and i chose this spot because it's near the wildlife way station which is where i used to volunteer and when i was thinking of locations for you and I to meet up. I was searching through uh, Rope Wiki and I came across one of Alden's famous Ditch Wiki canyons. I was reading it and I was like, well, maybe this will be a good place to go hang out for our little recording to go down a, a short canyon. And then I was reading in the description and it had mentioned hearing the wildlife way station animals on the hike up. And it got me really excited because I used to volunteer for the wildlife way station for about three years. And one of my favorite things was listening to the animals, the lions roaring and the chimps and the wolves in the beta it was describing hearing those animal sounds it it got me really nostalgic for hearing that again and since we've been here we've heard the lions roar twice so that was really exciting yeah and we heard a bunch of wolves or something so just to set the stage for other people who don't know who alden is or what ditch wiki jokingly is alden is a mutual friend of ours and past guest on this show twice who is traveling across the world right now for like the last year and a half but he was notorious for wanting to explore anything that may not have been explored prior 
to him. Some people would say terrible, terrible places, and he would argue that they are not. Some people say ditch wiki because some of his quote unquote canyons are glorified ditches. And we may be near one of those now. So what is this way station? Why does this exist? Why is there a place in Little Tahunga with chimps and lions and various other exotic animals in it? And how did you come about volunteering there? So the wildlife way station, I believe it was founded in like 1973. And it was a place to give animals a home that couldn't find a home anywhere else. Anything from tired animal actors to research chimps, things that have gone through medical testing and now they have their scientific testing on these animals and they have no other place to go. To people who thought it might be a cool idea to own a lion and they find out it's a bad idea. Where do these animals go after that? So the way station was founded to give these animals a place. I like <laughs> that you said some people find out it's a bad idea to own a lion. Yeah. Every single person in that particular person's life already knew that except for the person who got the lion and then later discovered oh it's a bad idea to have a lion as a pet right so it's like this amazing experience where i got to clean the enclosures and and some of the animals that were former pets that did have some sort of human interaction they would allow some of the volunteers to work with the animals and take them outside get them on walks so they're not just in their enclosures all day all right so you have to tell us because there's one thing to feed and walk a dog there's another thing to feed and occasionally help walk exotic animals. So tell us a little bit about that. Did you, for instance, go on walks with lions? We couldn't work with the big cats for safety reasons. Only the paid staff could work with some of the the large animals. They would let you start with the petting zoo animals and you could work with goats and pigs and llamas and sheep and things like that. If you prove that you're a capable, conscious person to work with them, then they would move you up to like a next level animal, which might have been birds, reptiles. I worked with a porcupine. I used to walk coyotes. They did allow you to work with the mountain lions. Some of the wolves would be like your higher level animals and primates and things like that. But I got into it because I've always loved animals my whole life. When I was a kid, I was convinced I was going to be a vet. So I went to school and studied animal science at Cal Poly Pomona. Towards the end of my schooling, I was convinced I wanted to go work at a zoo. So to get that experience, I started volunteering at the way station to get my experience around animals. And how long did you say you did that? For three years. You were volunteering the entire time? That's quite a commitment. Yeah, so my weekends would be there cleaning the cages. I did everything from walking and working hands-on with the animals to being on enrichment teams. For like the lions, we had these things called blood sickles, which is where you take... <laughs> so take, like, you were also getting serial killer training, essentially. <laughs> yeah, so we were working with blood and raw meat. It was a fun team. And what we would do is put a piece of meat in like this paper cup with some blood and water, <laughs> and they became blood popsicles. We put them in a freezer, and then they would freeze, and there were these fun little blood and meat popsicles for all the big cats. I'm picturing you having to bring these home for some reason over the weekend and a and like friend blood. of yours showing up and opening your freezer, <laughs> then finding an excuse to leave your house and calling the police. I brought my bear stuff home with me, but not the big cats. But we'd be working there. Your hands are all covered in blood and you're trying to mix these little popsicles up and it was a blast. We would take them around to all the big cats and some of them would get so excited. The lions would start pacing back and forth and hear them roar and get all super excited for their popsicle. It was like their treat for the week. Did you ever have to fight the urge or give in to the urge to taste the blood sickle and see what it tastes like? No. (laughs) I'm sure it smelled terrible. It was nasty and all the bees loved it. There's these meat bees that would come out when you start doing that. So then you're being chased down by bees. It was terrible, but the lions appreciated it. So if you did that for three years, even volunteering, you said on weekends, right? Mm -hmm. That is a substantial amount of time to develop relationships with these animals and get a sense of behaviors. I 
imagine you initially thinking, oh, I want to work in a zoo and I'm going to go volunteer at this place. The you that went there then and the you that left there three years later probably had a very different concept of wildlife and animals in general. So is that true? Do you find that certain concepts you have maybe shifted or that you learned specific things that you didn't know beforehand? The biggest change for me was just my love of animals. Like when I was growing up, my favorite animal was a tiger and I loved tigers and I was obsessed with tigers. And then I came to the way station. I started, you know, being around the animals. And then I found out I love lions. I love the personality of lions so much more than tigers. So that was kind of an interesting shift in the claim of my favorite animal. And I went there and I was like, you know, lions are way cooler. They're more social than I thought they were. Yeah. So tell us about the personality traits that you learned about from the lions. What did you learn that made you like them so much? They were more dog-like. They seemed to have more of a personality. We had this little game with two of the lions where I'd walk by and they'd start stalking you and they'd start crunching down and they're hunching over and then they would try to pounce and scare you. And tigers, I guess, were a little bit more standoffish. So what you're saying is the thing you liked about the lions is that they were actively trying to devour you, but there was a fence in the way. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It was a fun game. It was a fun game because there was a fence in between you. No fence, the game would be less fun for you. Yes. So we'll shift focus a little bit. We jumped right into the animals since we're already here. But as we said, you know, we're here in the outskirts of Los Angeles. And you came here, it sounds like, for school. But you did not grow up out here. It sounds like you grew up in Colorado, correct? What I did was, as a child, my mom's really close friend that I consider my aunt, uh, she had a ranch in Colorado. It was 356 acres in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by national forests. And when I mean out there, I mean the closest grocery store was 45 minutes away. The mayor of the town where her ranch was, a golden retriever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny. Idlewild also has, it might even be a golden retriever as its quote unquote mayor. Yeah. So it was out in the middle of nowhere. I think that's where I first got my love for the outdoors was every summer for a month. We would drive or fly out there and she had a ranch with 14 to 20 horses. I would just run out there. I would get to work with the horses. She'd take me riding. And in the afternoon, I was basically turned loose. I would go hiking and see you later. And I would just go run out into all the land just by myself, exploring around, hiking around. From a young age, I learned how to just be outdoors by myself. So you grew up in California, but you spent the summers Summers. in Colorado, which is sort of an awesome setup because that meant you got to be in Colorado when it was survivable. And then when (laughs) winter swept in, you got to leave and go back to Los Angeles where it's warm. It was nice. In the ranch was at 9,500 feet of elevation. So that was my first experience in the high altitude too. So I'd run around and I'd be like, gosh, I'm so tired. I don't understand. Like, why am I so out of shape? And I just didn't really understand the elevation at the time. But yeah, it was always nice, except for the summer storms. Like because of the elevation, the weather would change in a minute. And one time I went out hiking in shorts and a t-shirt. Then all of a sudden it was thunderstorms and lightning and I'm getting under some trees for shelter. And my mom comes out on an ATV trying to look for me as I'm hiking around in a storm. And is that where you started getting into equestrian activities? Yes. So that's where I first learned how to horseback ride and get around horses and have that experience. But yeah, we would go on trail rides up through the mountains. My aunt taught me all about horses. And then one of her horses on the ranch had an eye tumor and she had to have that removed. She said that that the horse couldn't be at elevation anymore. So when I was 16, she kind of gave me that horse as a 16th birthday present. I started riding from there. And the horse I got, she was a two-year-old and not well-trained at the time. So I got to learn about breaking horses and teaching them how to be under saddle and bridle. That's where I kind of learned training horses. Got my first few jobs working as training horses after that. If she gave you that horse, did that horse remain in Colorado?
Colorado for the rest of the year, or did that horse come back to California with you? It came to California. So that was a big responsibility that you inherited. <laughs> yes. I was so excited. We had the horse shipped out here to California, and I still have her to this day. She's about oh, 17 really? now. Uh-huh. Oh, she, nice. She was born in 1998. When I was a kid, I remember her when she was a tiny foal. Now she's 19 years old, and I still have her. And is she up in Bakersfield with you, or is she somewhere down here? Uh, she's in Southern California out in the Inland Empire at my parents' house. They have horse property, so they have my two horses on their property. Ah, so whenever you come down to visit, you can run by and ride your horses and then leave all the responsibilities with your parents. Oh, yes. <laughs> I know. My dad kills me. He reminds me every day about how uh, I did that. I would love to have them in Bakersfield. I really would. So yeah, I have my horse that I had known since she was a foal, and she's my trail horse, and I have another horse that I got for jumping. And I guess you would say that was like my first extreme sport, horse jumping. It takes a lot of dedication, a lot of commitment, because when you're riding the horse towards the jump, you have to be very confident and engaged, and you're like, we're going to go over this jump, even though sometimes you don't, and the horse breaks, and then you go flying and knocking over the jump. Yeah, so you go over the jump, just the horse isn't guaranteed to go with like, you. Like, you can't have those thoughts in your head because you have to have a lot of confidence when you do it because if you start having hesitations the horse can pick up on that in an instant imagine if that's your leader and if your leader's scared you're like well I'm scared that's when you find that disconnect and you see the horse pausing to the break and the rider goes flying over the head and that's usually when those moments happen so it's this difficult balance of needing to be confident and needing to project your image going over that jump every time but understanding that sometimes that might not happen one of the things you were telling me on our walk up here is how you've kind of had different stages of your life, how you've kind of danced between these different activities. So you earlier kind of got into horseback riding, and at some point you also started taking care of exotic animals. You also simultaneously have started to get into other activities and move between them. You were saying if I met you at certain times of your life, in one part you'd be an equestrian, another part you'd be a diver. So give us that timeline. Tell us a little bit about that. When it comes to hobbies, I tend to obsess about them. I got into horses, and then I went full out, and I was riding five days a week, six days a week and I was training horses and I was trail riding and I was jumping. I think my next hobby I got into was scuba diving. It wasn't really a thought I had had. I thought it was interesting, but I didn't really have any ambition to be a diver. What happened was, I think we were talking a little bit earlier about how I was into animals and then I wanted to be a vet and then I was convinced I was going to be a tiger trainer. I started volunteering with a way station and getting that animal experience and then one of my friends had gone on a trip to Australia Australia and dove the Great Barrier Reef on a Discover's scuba diving trip and he came back and he loved it and he said hey would anyone want to get scuba certified with me I didn't really have an ambition for it at the time but I was like you know I'm trying to pursue this path of being a zookeeper if I had this scuba cert that might open my abilities to get a job at an aquarium so I was like sure what the heck I'll go get certified with you and if I hate it at least it's something I can put on my resume I find that very interesting because I have a feeling that every other activity in your life at this point, you have not approached from that practical standpoint of this is something for my resume. <laughs> right. It was a completely unique experience. It wasn't something I expected to love. And I didn't have any ocean experience prior to that. It was just everyone going to the beach on the weekends and swimming a little bit in the surf. And that's about it. So I didn't know what to expect. We went to the pool. We did our training. The first time I got in the ocean, I was scared. I jumped in there. And then I remember I put my mask on and I put my face into the water for the very first time and I could see the fish and the kelp and I instantly fell in love. I just squealed. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing ever. And my love affair went from there. Where did you get your certificate?
certification? Through Eco's Scuba Diving in Culver City. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm familiar with them. So where'd you do your certification dives? At Catalina. Like I said, I, I didn't have any expectations really when I went into it. I just instantly fell in love. And then I was full force scuba diving. I would dive weeknights. There's a club called Dive Vets at the Dive Veterans Park in Redondo Beach. Every Wednesday night, they would meet up and go scuba diving. And it was a fun social club. And sometimes we'd go diving and if the surf looked bad, then we'd just hang out in the parking lot, drink a beer and hang out with really awesome people. And so I became part of that club. And then I just became obsessed and I would dive weeknights every single weekend. And I was diving three or four times a week, similar to horseback riding. I I tend to just obsess and throw myself straight into anything I do. So were you entirely neglecting your horses during this? At that point, yes. (laughs) Then I just went full force on the scuba diving. So you became a dive master. So tell us, first of all, for people who might not know, what differentiates a dive master from other certified divers? And then also why you particularly went after that? Because you don't have to do that. You know, you can still dive without becoming a dive master. So your motivations for doing that are something beyond just wanting to dive new things. I think it goes to my learning process. I love the process of going from being a noob to being proficient. I tend to to love that period of I don't know what I'm doing and then each little bit I get better and more capable. So that learning process I'm completely hooked on. So when I started scuba diving I got my open water and then I immediately got my advanced open water. And so the ratings start out at open water meaning you can dive unsupervised without an instructor up to 60 feet. You're not supposed to dive deeper than 60 feet but people do. And then from open water you go to advanced which is where you learn some additional skills like how to really control your buoyancy in the water, your navigation, your night diving. That's when you'll usually take your first deep dive which is down to 100 feet. So once you have your advanced rating then you are capable of diving on your own up to recreational limits which is 133 feet. From advanced there's the rescue diver course where you're learning rescue skills and how to you know respond to an unconscious diver underwater to giving CPR and first aid. Every person that's ever taken rescue diver says it's like the course that changes your life. I think that's the point where you switch from being a diver concerned about yourself and making sure you have your weights and you're set to really paying attention to other people. I realized as soon as I became a rescue diver I started paying attention to everyone around me making sure that they have their gear on right. I can watch someone I look around and then I see somebody struggling to put their BCD on and they might fall over with their big heavy tank and you see that and then you rush to help them. So you just kind of turn your focus from yourself to other people and so rescue was the really the turning point with reaching that level and then the dive master is what they consider the entry level to professional divers. So there's rescue diver and then if you're continuing on a recreational path then there's master scuba diver which is like the highest rating you can get recreational. Dive master is where you're starting the entry level to teaching diving and becoming a dive professional. And you're like this would be great on my resume Yes. should I want to work at the zoo or at the aquarium if I go all the way to dive master. And that was part of it and every person who does scuba diving after a while they kind of like to have that in their back pocket where if all else fails and I want to just make a break for it I'm going to go to the Caribbean and I'm going to teach diving or be a dive master so it's always a nice (laughs) thing to have in your back pocket that you like I can work professionally somewhere at this thing that I love. One of the things that I find really interesting about taking the path all the way the dive master is diving is different from every other activity in that you have to wear gear that's actively helping keep you alive. So there's a sense in other activities, like some people are not comfortable at heights, but you know, climbers are comfortable at heights. And so it's not that hard to get comfortable there and teach other people other things. But you were pointing out how you took the rescue class and now 
was the moment where you realized like, oh, I'm concerned about what other people are doing instead of just myself. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting just to know that you can reach this point where you can become comfortable enough in that environment and knowledgeable enough to where you can start to focus on those other things. And you don't have to just focus on, oh, do I have enough air? Do I need to worry about all these other things around me? It definitely changes your perspective. And while I was still on that career path of working with animals, I started volunteering at the California Science Center, which has a small aquarium there. And again, I loved it, but I was still thinking of my resume. I was like, (laughs) okay, now I'm going to have this volunteer experience at this aquarium. That'll help me get into this profession. So I started volunteering there and that's where my diving really changed. And I became really good at buoyancy control and how I move about in the water because now you're on display for everyone in the aquarium and you don't want to be that person wrapped up in fake kelp and half drowning (laughs) in front of all the aquarium guests. When I started diving at the aquarium, I really got control of my buoyancy. I learned things like how to move my fin tip to move around in the water instead of like blundering around with my fins. I changed and became like this really awesome mover about in the water column because of the aquarium diving. And then at some point you realize, oh, my resume is not padded enough, so I need to add new activities so that I can get a job working in an aquarium or a zoo. And then you started getting interested in these other things. So tell us about those things. Sure. So I got into rock climbing. Which is a very valuable skill for aquariums and zoos. Rock climbing was probably the first rope skill I got into. And it was my best friend from college, John. I was just hanging out with him one day and I was talking to him like, yeah, I would really want to do rock climbing one day because that was the first thing I could think of. You know, I, I didn't know about canyoneering at the time. So I told him I wanted to get into rock climbing. And he's like, hey, you should talk to my friend, Ryan Dacey, who all a lot of you know as Taco. And he's like, you should talk to my friend, Ryan. He does all that so stuff. So he directed you to the weirdest guy he could think of. <laughs> And so he's like, yeah, my friend does that. You should go talk to him. And so I did. And that's where my rock climbing and canyoneering hobby started. That's cool because I didn't realize that he's who you learned from. Because there's one thing I've noticed about him. He's a fun guy to climb with. He's just a fun guy to hang out with. But he is like really open to teaching people things and sharing things with other people, even though he has a predilection to climbing routes that when I see terrible chossy routes that no one would want to climb and probably don't have a name because no one's bothered to climb them. I call them Daisy Route. That's it in a nutshell. So that's kind of how I got into canyoneering and rock climbing. So when I was rock climbing, we would go do all of those. I did first descents with with Ryan, first and only descents a a lot of the time. (laughs) And we kind of had this mutual relationship where I think at the time he didn't have a car or his car wasn't working. There was all these projects he wanted to do, but he didn't have a way to get there and he didn't have anyone who would want to go do them with him. So I was like, hey, I'll come pick you up. I'll take you to do whatever projects you want to do. And I'm just going to absorb information and learn. So it was kind of this nice trade off where he's like, deal. Okay, let's look at the rock. Oh, that looks really cool. That looks really cool. Oh, that looks miserable and dangerous. Let's do that one. Yes, exactly. So that's how I entered into canyoneering. And that's what I thought canyoneering was. I'll say I had two mentors. Ryan was definitely my first mentor. But the first person who gave me a canyon opportunity was Dominic Nadolsky. Do you know Dominic? I don't. 
but I'm aware of him and I am aware of his reputation yes. for bringing people into situations like you're probably about to describe. So those were my two mentors coming into this rope world. All um, you need to do is add Scott Sweeney, who's also been on this show in the past, to that list. And, and you would have all the people who would take you to do things no one else wants to do. And Scott was on my first trip. All right, there you go. So my very first canyon was Cerberus Canyon in Death Valley. If you're not familiar with Cerberus, Cerberus is one of the bigger canyons you can do in Death Valley. It's got 20... I thought you were going to go into the mythology oh. of, of the three-headed Cerberus creature. <laughs> so yeah, it's 29 rappels up to 270 feet. I had never done a canyon before. My rope experience was limited to that of 40-foot, 50-foot walls climbing and rappelling. So Dominic, he's like, hey, do you want to go on this canyon? And he sends me the Chris Brennan beta, which is what we grew up on prior yep, to yep, Rope Wakey. Yep. I'm reading through the beta and I'm like, dude, I can't do this. And he's like, hey, let's have dinner. Let's talk about it. You know, it'll be okay. And so and I'm convincing him. I'm like, these are huge rappels. And I was very blatant about my experience. I was like, I've only rappelled 40 feet. He's like, you'll be fine. So I was like, okay. And I went out there and did it. And I was fine, but you know, I wouldn't recommend <laughs> that being anyone's first canyon. I actually, I just did it last year at Death Valley Fest of 2017 because I hadn't done it since I did it my first time. And I had a mixed feelings about it. Half of it was like, I'm so much more capable now. And I remember these things being so much bigger. I remember the 270 being huge. And now I look at it and go, oh, it's not that big now. But then I also remember going through the canyon going, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did this for the first time. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I like to do that where you go back years later. I've gone back and done the first canyons that I ever did and lead them myself and then realize like, wow, these seem like such a big deal then and not now. And then the same thing with the first climbing routes that I ever led go back after the fact and see how you've changed. So that was my first canyon. And if you know anything about that, there's no bolts. You're piling off Karen anchors and dead man anchors. So And by dead man anchors, she means a bunch of rocks with webbing on them buried in a hole, not that you kill a person in the party and tie a rope to them. That was my first canyon. And then after that, I was doing first descent projects with Taco. These are the first and only descents. You're hiking for 17 miles bushwhacking and getting covered in poison oak. And I just thought that's what canyoneering was. You know, I had Cerberus, which was a massive canyon, rappelling off rocks to bushwhacking through the San Gabriels. To me, that was just canyoneering. I remember my first canyon I ever did with bolts terrified me. I looked at these tiny little pieces of metal and I was like, that's not going to hold me. What that's is that? Hilarious. And so like, I was actually more worried like, about- Can't we just build a cairn anchor right here? Yeah, <laughs> I was like the massive rocks or trees. That made sense to me. But I looked at these tiny little metal pieces just sticking there on the side of the rock and I'm like, what is that? That's not going to hold me in. So I was terrified. So I came into it backwards. Can we like appreciate for a moment? Have you had poison oak? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Do you ever do the thing in the shower where you turn the water on super hot? It feels terrible for a second and it's then like, it feels great and then yeah. it just goes back. Yeah, it's like yeah. this oak gasm. Poison oak is awful and terrible, but there is one amazing thing about it is if you scald yourself, which I don't recommend, but super <laughs> hot water or with the hair dryer, the super heat, it like gives you like this fun like pleasure all over your body and it feels so great. And that's how I could like judge how my poison oak was healing is when the hot water became hurt and painful and it wasn't like amazing anymore. That's what I was like, oh, okay, finally my poison oak is healing. Up. I've been very lucky in that I've only gotten poison oak a few times, but 
I definitely, as they claim, you get more susceptible to it. I definitely have gotten it a little worse each time. Yeah, that happened to me. That seemed to be yeah. my progression as well. Yeah. As the first few canyons, I didn't notice it. And then as I went along, I've gotten it head to toe before. The worst that I've had it so far was after doing Upper Salmon Creek up near Kernville. And we had to hike through a bunch of it. And I had it in my armpits, like on my arms. But thankfully, not worse than that. Now, to change topic a little bit, but not entirely, since we're still talking about canyoneering. You mentioned having a breakdown doing something you weren't prepared for. So far, you mentioned doing something you technically weren't prepared for, which was Cerberus, and coming through just fine. So I'm very curious to hear about what was beyond your skill level if you were able to get through Cerberus as your first candy. It was more, not necessarily skill, but just stamina. So Taco, Ryan, DC, and I, he came up with this idea to do a first descent on this canyon called Mine Gulch, which entailed summiting up Baden Powell and then dropping in backside near where Bighorn Mine is, dropping the whole canyon just to explore it. So the whole day was we had to summon a mountain and then descend 5,000 feet and then hike back up, I think, to 2,500, 3,000 feet to get back to where our cars were. I think if I tried to do it again, it probably wouldn't be so bad. But at the time, it was beyond my physical capabilities. I was kind of susceptible to getting AMS, the acute mountain sickness or altitude sickness. That was my first experience with mountain sickness and I didn't quite understand what was happening to me at the time. We drop into this canyon and I think we descended. We were scree skiing down a slope of about two or three thousand feet till we actually hit the canyon. So I was really tired and I had started to get sick but I didn't realize what was happening to me. So I started feeling just really tired. That was the first thing that I felt. I felt like I couldn't walk and then all of a sudden I started getting really nauseated and I was throwing up in between rappels and I just felt like I had no energy what Whatsoever. He was just kept telling me to keep moving to get down because his plan was to get me into lower elevation because he realized it was the altitude that was getting to me. And he kept asking me to move down and I would just sit down and I ended up like sliding down the scree on my butt. And at the time I was tearing my pants and I had no idea. So the whole back of my pants are torn and I just had no energy. And at times I was asking him for a helicopter. I was like, how much does it cost to get a helicopter <laughs> out of here? I was just so tired. It was mostly the summit of the mountain and mostly the altitude sickness that I didn't realize was affecting me. But by the time we got to the bottom of the canyon, I was completely spent. And then he's like, okay, well now we got to hike 3000 feet out to get out to where our cars are. And I think the whole day took about 15 hours. So it was a long day. Once we got to the bottom, I was just spent and I'd been throwing up and I'd been sick and I'm just done. And then he's like, now we have to hike, you know, this yeah, whole yeah. hike out. I was just mentally broke down. And I think I was just kind of like, I can't do this. I physically cannot move anymore. And I start like crying to myself silently <laughs> just hiking and I'm like why do I do these things you know I'm hating myself for being there and mad at him for taking me to this place and I would hike and then a few times I just collapsed on the trail and just lay there motionless like I can't move I can't move the funny thing was every time I said like I physically cannot move anymore I found I could take a step and another step each time I was crying and mad and I said I was never going to canyoneer again each step and each time I said I couldn't I found that I could by the end of that day you know I was exhausted and I could barely walk because I had work the next day so I think that was half of my motivation to get out of the canyon because you were very dedicated to <laughs> padding your resume and making your career choices come true but yeah I was such a diligent worker in my head I was like oh no I can't be late because I, I was in no cell service and no one would know where I'm at you know and they'd be worried about me so I was like I have to make it out tonight I have to make it out tonight I think about a week later 
later, I realized, wow, that was an amazing experience. I realized how a lot of our limitations are really just mental because there were so many times on that hike that I was like crying to myself saying, I cannot move it any further. And then I was able to. And I think that really kind of transcended most everything I do now because I always look back to that moment. Every time I'm having a hard day or a long hike or tired with whatever I'm doing, if I'm on a long climb, I always think this is terrible, but it's never as bad as that day. And I made it through that day. When I was marathon training and I ran the LA marathon, I remember, you know, mile 23, 24, you're so tired. And I was like, yeah, everything hurts. I've got blisters. My legs are shot, but you know what? I'm not crying, like wishing like I wasn't here. So I'm like, it's not that bad. And I always kind of look back at that thinking like, well, it was never as bad as that day that I was crying, wishing I could never do it again. This isn't as bad as a Daisy route, whatever I'm doing. I like that because I do find the moments that leave the strongest, like indelible mark on us are those really shitty moments that we would never choose, except in the case of Ryan Daisy, who only chooses these moments. You'd never seek out per se, let me go have a terrible day like that. But then those are the days who change who you are and set you up for greater success afterwards or make you hate the sport and never return to it. One of the two. (laughs) So where did you go from there? Stopped hanging out with Daisy. Uh, No, I loved it. I kept doing it. I did a lot of first ascents and then I got into trade routes and then I realized canyoneering can actually be fun and it's not about suffering all day. So at the same time, I was really into ropes and really into scuba. Which do not go together at all. (laughs) So with the scuba, I was volunteering at the aquarium and our aquarium director was this really awesome character, Chris Wade. He's like this salty sea captain. He lived on a boat. He owned this boat called the RV Sea Watch, which was like this 73 foot research vessel that we all dubbed the shark boat. For a while, I got to know Chris and then I got to crew on his boat and I would go out on trips and we'd run trips to Catalina to Santa Barbara Island, a lot of the Channel Islands. I really got into shark conservation through Chris and the shark boat. It was not a path that I expected I would get into. I know this almost doesn't belong on your resume at all. (laughs) What we did was we'd go out there, we'd set the boat out, we'd set some fish in the water to track the sharks and then we'd go dive with them free contact and the idea was to give people this experience with sharks and to realize they're not the man eaters that you think they are. They're not really out there with an agenda to hurt people. That wasn't something I really thought of at the time. I didn't have really any opinion about sharks prior to doing this and then I got to see them in the water and they're just amazingly beautiful. There were moments where I'm inches away from these sharks and they're eating on fish and I'm just sitting there filming them and they have no interest in me. Like they're not going to turn around and try to bite me. We had these really wonderful experiences diving and the idea was to share that love of animals with other people. The biggest thing affecting sharks is shark finning for the shark fin soup and things like that. And over 100 million sharks die each year, which is affecting the ecosystem at large. So the idea is to give people these positive images of sharks. That way they're less likely to participate in things like eating shark fin soup or wanting to go on shark hunting trips and things like that. We would give people ecotourism, like these kind of experiences to grow our respect. So we would dive with blue sharks and some makos that we'd find around here in California. Then we took the shark boat down to Guadalupe Island off Mexico near Ensenada, or I think it's Rosarita, sorry. There we got to dive free contact with these sharks and it was probably the most humbling experience of my life where you're in the water and you realize you're not... At the top of the, the food chain. Yeah, it's just this amazing surreal experience. I remember being 
standing in the water and this 14 foot sharks cruising by they look at you with these big black eyes you feel like they're just seeing your soul type thing it's amazing and it's humbling because you're like i'm not in control of the situation you know if the shark wanted to turn right. and, yeah if it wanted to eat me it totally could and i am completely defenseless to this creature and so half the time you're kind of expecting that to happen because that's what your brain's been trained and then you realize they're not and they're just you know just checking you out and cruising by so it's just this surreal experience that was like the most amazing thing that i had happen and that was not the first time you had been diving with sharks right right uh, i dove with some blue sharks but we're talking about like five foot sharks not like the biggest one we saw was the 16 foot gray white shark and so it was on a completely different level because you can go in knowing like oh they don't really want to eat me blah 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 but your subconscious is going to say different things so the first time you did dive and there was a substantial shark nearby what was that like oh it was terrifying <laughs> absolutely terrifying we'd have like a certain amount of divers and we'd all go down in a cage and so we have the cage to hang out and if you felt comfortable you could stay inside if you felt a little comfortable and it seems like the sharks were kind of calm and curious and they weren't too aggressive you could go outside the cage it was at your choice we went down in the cage at the time there was no sharks around so we're like okay we kind of got a little bit confident everyone was kind of swimming around in the blue water the water out at Guadalupe Island is just crystal clear blue so you can see for like 100 feet the viz was so great there we're waiting around it'd been maybe 30 minutes and we're not seeing any sharks I think everyone's just kind of swimming around enjoying the water and I had gone out a little bit a little ways and my friend who was working as the safety diver for our group kind of comes over next to me I'm looking at him I'm like oh hi and then I turn and look I'm like oh there's a shark and then we're looking at the shark and it's just like swimming straight at us like you can see like the head coming and it's tail swishing back and forth and he's coming straight at us and I was like oh no because you know the jaws theme is running through your head and you're like this is it and I look around I'm like okay where's the cage and then I look over and the cage is like 50 feet away I didn't realize I'd been like swimming out so far I'm like oh no I can't swim for the cage what do I do so I sit really calm in the water and then the shark's still swimming straight at us and then I totally sacrificed my friend Josh I grabbed his BCD and I hid behind him and I'm like that's it Josh you're getting eaten not me and wow that must have been great thanks for your friendship that day yeah and so I hide behind his BCD and then the shark comes up and then at the last minute he just kind of turns and just swims on his merry way and I'm sure the shark had no ill intentions but he had no idea that I was freaking out that shark had no ill intentions but still managed to end your friendship yeah so that was one of the most heart pounding moments of my experience was just seeing the shark swim and it's so great because I have a little footage of that and it's just amazing you can see him swim straight at us it was really neat yeah I think the largest thing I've ever swam with is manta rays in Hawaii and there's something a little intimidating about them and I'm not a person that is like oddly frightened by sharks or the ocean or anything but I do think if I was diving and a shark approached I would have to fight that panic <laughs> reflex because as you were saying they are in complete control you're in their environment you're a clumsy oaf and they're an <laughs> elegant killer beast that can do whatever it wants at that point point. and it's amazing that they don't I know a couple shark conservationists out in Hawaii it's a couple ocean and Juan they're amazing photographers and strong free divers oceans like this beautiful model looking woman and so Juan goes down and takes these beautiful pictures of her swimming next to tiger sharks and next to all these beautiful animals just to give them a different image they're really amazing right. what they do with their shark conservation yeah Jaws did a bunch of unfortunate things for sharks and for people's fear of sharks right so we're trying to work to reverse that but I think it's really cool that you can go you can experience this creature that you admit terrified you and 
then change your relationship with it so that you enjoy being near it. You can admire it from afar and then be inspired to want to help conserve it. So what sort of things are you doing to actively help conserve shark populations? It's not so much of my focus anymore. But well, of we, course it, not. You filled out that part of your resume <laughs> and then you moved into paragliding. I did find a new hobby and I have a new obsession, I do admit. But at the time we would work to work on the image as far as bringing people out and letting other people have that amazing experience too. When we were down at Guadalupe Island, there is a project called Fins Attached and they do shark research out there. So we were kind of working with the biologists down there to help ID sharks that we had seen that day and help them with the identification and tracking of the great white sharks. Something I definitely want to make sure we do is I'll get you to give me links to places like that so that people who are interested in getting involved in that can find ways to do that. So like we were saying, your mercurial nature has brought you (laughs) to other activities, including stunt repelling. So let's talk about that a little bit because I guess it's its own activity, although it shares so much with climbing or canyoneering or other rope type activities. So what differentiates a stunt repel from any other type of repelling? Stunt repelling is more of a one-off repel. So you're not trying to get down a cave or a canyon. It's mostly just repelling for the sake of repelling. Usually those are large repels. So when I first got into canyoneering, I loved the big repels. I love the exposure. My first canyon, I did a 270 and I thought that was amazing. I loved hanging out in the great expanse. And this was prior to flying. (laughs) To me, that was the closest to flying I could get and hanging out in the big open air was on rope. I just naturally went through a progression of the 270. I went with Scott Swaney on his first descents in the Death Valley canyons and we did a 370. And from there I did Undertaker Canyon, which is out in Death Valley. And that is a 580 foot rappel, which is probably one of the largest canyon rappels you can do. And then from there, someone had told me about this event, Bridge Day. What Bridge Day is, is in West Virginia, there's a bridge called the New River Gorge Bridge in Fayetteville. Once a year, it's always the third Saturday of October, they shut down the traffic to the bridge and they allow people to base jump and rappel off of it. So it's this really fun festival. Last year, there's about 80,000 people who come out to this event and they watch the base jumpers and the rappellers. And so we get to do an 850 foot rappel off this bridge. I had heard about it and I was like, I have to do it. I didn't know anyone who did and I tried a few contacts with no luck. So I pretty much just made my own opportunity and I emailed the event organizer and I said, I know you have to be on a team to participate, but how can I get in here? And here's my rappelling resume and what can I do? (laughs) And so I literally sent them a video from Widowmaker, the the 580 (laughs) foot rappel. I listed all my experiences and I was like, how can I get on board? And they said, wow, this this girl has a lot of experience creating resumes. This is the (laughs) nicest rappel resume and only rappel resume we've ever received. So Benji, the organizer, was amazing and he hooked me up with a team. They found a team who had space who can get me on board, but they're like, okay, but we can't just take you to the bridge for the first time and we don't know who you are. So you're going to have to make it out to our practice in three weeks in North Carolina at this place called Whitesides, which is a 700-foot rappel. In three weeks, I had to get on an airplane, book a ticket to go to North Carolina to go do this rappel and learn how to use the caving style equipment that they use because I had done all my 
relying on canyoneering devices like ATS and ATCs. I think they don't allow those at the bridge on bridge day. You have to use a caving rack, which I had never used before. So I had to have a crash course in caving gear and how to do this big rappel. Yeah, for people who don't do a lot of rappelling or have a lot of experience rappelling, what they might not realize once you get to rappels of these ridiculously long lengths is friction is going to change drastically as you go. And so the speed that you can move is drastically going to change. And so what you're using is a caving rack so that you can easily remove and add friction as you make your way down the road. Correct. And that was something I hadn't had experience prior to. I had to have a crash course and using a rack. One of the places I went, I'm like, where can I find big drops to use this rack? So I took uh, an 18 inch rack through Middle Earth in Yosemite. because that was the place I can think of that had large drops that I could practice fine tuning with that. So I learned how to use a rack in a few weeks and then I was off to North Carolina and I did 700 foot rappel off white sides. We also climb back up the rope too, which is also interesting. We use a system called the rope walker where we have cams attached to our feet and a roller on our chest that keeps you to the rope. And then you're just walking up the rope, which is another fun mental exercise. Once you start getting climbing on these big exposures, like 700 feet of rope, it's kind of funny. Your brain starts tricking you a little bit and I'll start thinking about, okay, well, I have all these really great points of attachment, but what if the rope breaks just above my head? What am I going to do? So like you get these weird mental images and you start to think like, oh no, what if the rope snap makes you climb faster? Okay. So I'm very curious about this system you just mentioned. Is it essentially sincerely walking up the rope? So all of the work is being done by your legs as opposed to jumaring where the work is kind of split between your arms and your legs? Yes. You can be a hundred percent hands-free on this system. It basically has a cam on your ankle and on your knee. There is a bungee system. So when you take a step, the bungee pulls that cam up, you know, and then it stops and then you take the next step and then the bungee pulls that cam up. So you're literally just stair stepping up this rope completely hands-free. Okay, that is very interesting. I want to learn more about this in the future. It's probably the most efficient system, but it is pretty bulky, the gear. So you're not going to use it on anything less than like 200 feet. That's where you'd use more of a frog system. This is really meant for covering long distances of rope. So I've done bridge day for three years now. And you just did it again recently, correct? I did. I just did it this past Saturday. Bridge day is an amazing experience. Like I was saying earlier, how there's thousands of people on top of this bridge and the repellers are underneath on the catwalk. And when you're on the catwalk and you're on the rope, you don't see any of that because it's all above you on the bridge. So it's kind of this dichotomy of when you're on the bridge, it's so quiet and beautiful. And then you get back up to the top and there's just this chaos of people that you just can't see from under the bridge. It's really neat. So what you do is you can do these 850 foot rappels down and then they run a shuttle system for the base jumpers and rappellers. So you can get on a bus and get right back up to the top. So it's probably the only place that you can do four or five 800 foot rappels in a day. You know, where else would you have that chance? So it's a great place to practice big drops like that. It's really a lot of the East Coast cavers use it for a testing grounds per se or a pre-qualifier for doing bigger pits like Golandrinas down in Mexico. There's a 1,200 foot pit. That's where the swallows used to come in and out. And it's 1,200 feet deep. So usually people use bridge day as like a predetermined for doing these larger caves. But you said 850 feet, still not high enough. 1,200 feet, still not high enough. And at some point you decided, hey, let me get a rope that's 3,000 feet and wrap down El Cap. 
Yes. Tell us about that, because 3,000 feet of rope is very bulky and heavy. I have this obsession with learning and what's the next step and where can I go from here and what's the bigger thing. So, you know, I did the 270, then I did the 370, and then I did the 580 on Widowmaker, and I was like, what's next? And I said, bridge day, bridge day's next. And so I did the 850, and then I was like, wow, this is it. And then I heard the teams talking about repelling L cap, and I'm like, wait a minute. And then they're like, yeah, it's a, a 2,650-foot uh, repel. And I was like, I got to do it. What area are you wrapping down? Like, which climbing route would it be? Because it's not the nose if it's that short in comparison. It's near the Dawn Wall. Okay, so it's on that side. It's not right on the edge of the nose, but it's on the side, but near the Dawn so Wall. You kick Tommy Caldwell off the wall as you, <laughs> as you wrap down. Yeah, so it's surprising. Like, we'll get climbers. I think our previous team expeditions had met Alex Honnold on the wall. <laughs> and he's like, why the hell are you doing that? You're going the wrong way. It's a lot to organize logistically. Usually we'll have a team of mules bring the rope and all of our camping gear up to the top. Yeah, so I know you know. What is the weight of 3,000 feet of rope? Oh, I don't know. You don't know? Because you had to put it on mules, right? But that was the the pre-rigging team. I got to show up and just do the fun stuff. But it's got to be several dozen. I think we say our 850 foot how much was that like 150 pounds of rope weight it's a lot of rope weight the friction change is substantial when you're on el cap but yeah so the challenge to el cap is there's no easy way to get to the top of el cap you're looking at a nine mile hike or a half mile climb straight up the rope and that's about the only way to get up there the fun part of it is you really got to want it and you really got to want to work for it so when i went to el cap we did the hike in and a lot of my concern was for going too fast and getting out of control with my friction but really a bigger concern is having too much friction and overcoming the weight of the rope at the beginning. The friction at the top must be terrible. You've got 25, 2800 feet of rope underneath you and all those hundreds of pounds pulling down. <laughs> it's like having a dead person hanging off of your rope. Right. So we would use a five to one haul system to create enough slack to feed it into your rack. Uh, so that's how you would get on rope. So overcoming friction is actually more the concern really than getting too little or coming out of control. So if my LCAP rappel was a little bit long the first time I did it. It took quite a while because I think I was so concerned about friction. I would start going down and then be like, oh, I'm going a little fast. I need to add a bar. And then I add a bar and then I come to a screeching halt. And so then I would have to like take a bar off and then start up again. And that whole process took a while. But the interesting part about LCAP was I think my brain couldn't fathom how big it is and how high you were. When I was on the edge of LCAP and I was looking down, I just looked down. I'm like, oh, it looks like bridge day. It's about, you know, 800 feet. Like, I've done. (laughs) this before it's no big deal 800 feet later it still looked that way that was the difference it was like i'm repelling and i'm repelling for 10 minutes and i'm still 800 feet up and i'm repelling you know another five minutes and i'm still 800 feet up and then all of a sudden i'm like oh now i'm 800 feet up it's like when you fall out of an airplane and it just feels like you're barely moving through space because the earth is only slightly getting larger there's some different challenges about hellcap when you're on that much rope if the wind starts picking up you can get blown it'll be 50 feet away from the wall then you're 100 feet away from the wall you're just all over the place one thing i noticed too was most of the rappel is free hanging there is one part when it kind of you saw that apron sticks out a little bit you can touch against the wall a little bit so when the wind's dead 
there is a point where you can touch against the wall. I started doing that a little bit, so I radioed down for my bottom belay to tighten up to pull me away from the wall a little bit. And just the act of tensioning the rope created like a dynamic wave through this rope. And I start bouncing 15, 20 feet up and down, up and down. And I got like a little motion sickness looking at the wall. I'm like to look away from this. And, and what thickness rope are you using here? Are we talking 10 mil, 11 mil? 11 mil. 11 mil, 11 so mil like static. I was just bouncing up and down 15, 20 feet. And so that was just crazy. So everything's exaggerated, but it was kind of amazing. And so you said it took a while to get down. How long is a while? About 25 minutes. That doesn't sound terrible because that is a long distance and a lot of different variables to deal with. And you probably want to enjoy the view. But what about harness? Because hanging in a harness for 25 minutes can be miserable. I used a caving style harness with some extra padding. They're wider around the leg loops and they're a little bit padded. So that way you're a little bit more comfortable sitting in the harness that long. And no chest harness? Just the waist harness. And I had the chest plate for my ascending gear. So if at any point I had to turn around and ascend, I could do that. Ascending is a whole nother beast too. It kind of took me back to my Gulch where it's a mental exercise when you have to climb half mile straight of right. rope. So when we did the climb, we did it at night because in the day, the sun's baking the rock and then you're just getting cooked from both the rock and the sun. So usually we do our climbing at night. It's a lot cooler. I did a tandem, which is three people climbing on the rope at the same time. I knew I was going to be a little bit slower than my teammates, so I let them start out ahead of me. So our first person got on rope around 11 p.m. and I think I got on rope around 11.30 and I basically basically climbed all night. The views were spectacular. You can see all the stars and shooting stars. The first 700 feet went by really fast. And I was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to knock this out in no time. There were some climbers on El Cap. We could see two headlights. And I remember they were up here and I'm started climbing. You can see them slowly moving down where we're climbing at a much faster rate than they were. And they're like, cheaters. They're probably looking like, those people are amazing. How are they doing that? They probably had no idea. They probably had no idea we're ascending on a rope. They thought you guys were going for the speed record in the dark. It was cruising along and then all of a sudden you know you start getting tired and then my pace is slowing down and I just start looking at the rope and my headlamp and I could just see my ascenders just inching up the rope and I'm like I'll never gonna make this. It became a mental exercise and I turn off my headlamp and you keep climbing until you regret every life decision that brought you there. You're like why do I do this? Why do I do these things? You're tired and exhausted and everything hurts. You never think you're gonna top out. The top always looks forever long and you're never getting closer and I think I topped out about 3.30 in the morning so it took me about four hours to climb which is average to slow because it was my first time but I remember after topping out it was like just this amazing feeling of accomplishment and then you forget all the pain and then you're like yeah let's do it again. So people say that's all childbirth is. I wouldn't know from personal experience. So at some point you decided well 3,000 feet's not high enough either and going down and then back up a rope's not enough. What I really want to do is hang from a wing in the sky. So how did that come about? So flying, the idea of free flight has always been something I would have been fascinated with. As a kid, even as an adult, I would go hiking and if I see an edge, I always imagine flying off of it. So rappelling was the closest thing I could get to being in that airspace. It was one of those things that I've always been interested in, but I was maybe afraid to commit to. I was also into scuba diving, so I didn't have money at the time. Which is flying in water. Yes. <laughs> it was something I'd always been interested in. Did you ever see the movie The Rescuers Down Under? It, it was the Disney <laughs> yes, animated yes, I've movie. Seen that movie. Okay, so you remember the scene where the little boy's climbing up to the top of the, the cliff to rescue the eagle and she's tied down because the hunter had shot her and he starts cutting the rope to free 
the golden eagle and then she breaks free and then he goes flying he gets knocked off the cliff and then he's falling and then the bird swoops down and grabs him and then the bird's flying around and flying him through the air that moment I was like that's what I want to do <laughs> I want an eagle to take me on a flight and fly around in the sky and the clouds and that's where I fell in love with the idea of flight was from this childhood movie I have to derail us just for a second since we're talking about flying and uh, we have a kinship here so I have to see how deep it goes are you one of those people who can fly in your dreams yes have you always been capable of flying in your dreams like through childhood yes is it just a default thing that if you're dreaming you can probably fly yes alright we're the same way now here's the other question because okay. I always I'm always curious when people share this all my life I can fly in my dreams sometimes I could I'll have lucid dreams and one time I decided to test it mm-hmm. and I said is this reality or is it a dream if I can fly I know it's a dream and then I couldn't fly so I thought it was reality what? but at some point in my child's mind when I was very young I started flying in my dreams my brain subconsciously created a logic for how flight works in my mm-hmm. dreams and I think everybody does that so tell me how yours works so I've heard people talk about like being able to swim through the air it wasn't anything like that it was just kind of flying like a bird like I could just stick my arms out and I just had that propulsion and I could let the wind go over me and I could have that flight so I guess I flew like a bird where I just stuck my arms out and they were like wings and they could you know give me that lift that was kind of my flying sensation mine has always been kind of this weird combination of them all in that it's like a mixture of the swimming that you're talking about and momentum mm-hmm. so what I've always had to do is get a running start and depending on what dream that running start could vary from like five feet to like 50 feet i get a running start to build up some momentum and then i leap into the air at some point i could kind of just hover through the air but a lot of times if i need to change velocity or like direction i don't so much swim like i wouldn't place my hands in front of me but mm-hmm. i'd place them underneath me and push against the air as if i would push oh. through the currents of the air and slide between them for some reason my mind as a kid that made sense and so that's how it's been ever since Mine was like a leaning motion I think that's what it was. <laughs> I think it says something about the subconscious mind of people and like their sense of logic so I needed to find that out so I derailed our entire conversation to talk about flying in the dreams yes. so now I will let you return to what you were talking about flying was always something I wanted to do I just didn't have quite the means to do it and then I just recently did I always had a philosophy that like things were as dangerous as you make it and then I get into paragliding I'm like this isn't safe at all every person I'm talking to has the story about yeah I broke my leg yeah I broke my back and that's just kind of a part of it and I'm just like what did I get myself into but it's still safer than base jumping or cave diving yeah I talked to some base jumpers at the bridge on Saturday and I told them about getting into paragliding they're like yeah one of my friends want to do that but like that's way more dangerous than base jumping and I'm like oh no say say that it is safer otherwise Erica will argue with me that I'm not allowed to get into paragliding (laughs) so just agree with me that it is safer than base jumping oh I agree those base jumpers are out of their mind. I got into paragliding. The first thing I found out is the air is way more textured than I realized. Like you see the birds and they're all just gracefully floating about and you think it's all smooth but there's so much movement. It's so violent. The thermals, the hot air rising off the ground is so turbulent and rough. I find that like when you're on top of a mountain and then you have a cloud layer beneath you, it really brings home how much the air and the water have in common. Yeah, that three-dimensional space. Yeah, and just the currents and the motions. Like There are times you look at clouds and it looks like waves. The wind is similar to current and then you have the turbulence. It's very much like water. The only hard part is like you can't see it and that's a problem. Like when I'm out scuba diving, I can see the waves. I can see current by the bent over kelp but flying, I'll just 
to be flying along and then all of a sudden everything's bumpy and turbulent and I'm like where did that come from and I can't tell so this is still very new for me so I'm at that beginning process again just like trying to eat it up as much as I can and it is a lot different it's a lot more committing something that I both hate and love about it is you have to be self-reliant and independent there's not a point when you're flying you're like oh this is kind of scary can you belay me past this part right you can't get a tea rescue like in kayaking or something no one can help you and I both love that and respect that because you have to be self-reliant so the way the lessons kind of work is you're flying on your own and you have radio contact with your instructor so they'll tell you how to turn and where to move your hands and they'll kind of guide you through your first few flights and then the more flights you get the less radio feedback you'll get so that's kind of how it works so from day one you're all on your own trying to fly that's definitely a different dynamic is not having that ability of anyone to help you everything is in the moment and you have to be constantly vigilant or what they call active piloting all the time that you're always paying attention it's not like maybe you're on a climbing route and you're looking at this route and it looks really hard and you're like hold on can you give me some tension and let me sit here and think about it for a second how am I going to get past this problem in the moment when you're flying if you run into some turbulent air or you take a partial deflation and something happens to your wing you can't say hold on time out let me think about how I'm going to react to this problem it's you have to react in the moment and it has to be accurate so that's definitely a different aspect from the sports that I've done so far each decision has to be made in the moment and you have to make the right one it's challenging in that regard but I love it (laughs) so how did you go about getting the training for it I went to Eagle Paragliding in Santa Barbara and I was recommended from a friend Ben so I had seen Ben's pictures from paragliding before and I'm like hey I really want to do that where did you go and learn and so Ben gave me a ton of great information I can imagine that he would he's excellent I asked him like one question and he gave me paragraphs Uh and paragraphs Ben's been super excited now because before his only paragliding friend was his friend James up in the Bay area and so he didn't have anyone locally and so he's been really excited and kind of following my progress because now he's got a new buddy to go paragliding with. Has he tried to sell you his power paraglider that he doesn't like? He has actually. (laughs) Anytime I want it I get a really great deal on it. So I got into paragliding and I got David Angel into it as well. I was talking to him about it and then I found him doing a lot of research about it as well. Like I would tell him something he's like hey did you look at this or that and I'm like you should come try it. So now the three of us have been getting out and flying. I'm going to derail us one more time because we're talking about flying. And so I have to ask this question personally as well because I never understand. You know that age-old question where people are like, oh, if you could have a superpower, would it be x-ray vision or flying? I don't even understand how people put those in the same category. (laughs) Not the same at all. (laughs) It seems like the most obvious answer. So I'm going to give you that dumb question that people ask. Which one of those would you pick? Oh, flying. Of course. That was always my superpower. Not x-ray vision, I'm sorry, invisibility. Invisibility. They're not even in the same category. (laughs) Not at all. But no, whenever we had that question your superpower always flying I cannot think of a single way that invisibility would be more useful or more enjoyable <laughs> I think I wanted both only just so I could be invisible flying and then people won't bother me right <laughs> I think that was the only time I would choose that one so we've discussed this wide variety of things which began with you trying to pad your resume and then you finding oh these activities are enjoyable on their own outside of career goals and then you've just kind of bounced from one to the other sometimes holding on to the others, sometimes kind of focusing more on something else instead. What is it about these activities that draws you to them and makes you continue to pursue all of them? I love being outside. I know a lot of the cliche answers of why we get outside. A 
lot of people like to say is like, I like to see things that nobody's ever seen. That this is great. the most common answer to why do you canyoneer? Absolutely. Right. And I absolutely agree. And I love the idea of exploring. I feel like I take it to a slightly different place. And it's not so much to see things nobody has seen, but more to get to places nobody can get to. And I do that distinction from growing up in Southern California. And you know how crowded it is here and congested. And it's so hard to just find a small bit of earth just for yourself. Everywhere you go, there's always somebody there. What really drew me to canyoneering was to get to a place I knew nobody else can get to. And for a few moments, I have this little bit of earth that's mine or my parties. No one's going to bother us and we have it all to ourselves. And I liked that isolation aspect. So for me, it's about finding these places that I know like for you know, a brief period in time, like it's all mine and no one's going to come and there's not going to be these annoying hikers that are very loud and listening to their music or being disruptive and taking me away from that nature aspect and really loving the beauty that's around me. That's kind of the main reason. I also, as far as the outdoor adventure sports, it just really brings me into the moment. When I'm out canyoneering and it takes so much of your focus, the day-to-day problems kind of disappear. Like you're not worried about the stresses at work or what's going on in your personal life. You're just in the moment trying to problem solve and get through these situations. So I love how it just brings you into the now and away from the day-to-day stresses of life. Another thing I had mentioned earlier was about that learning process. Like I love the process of going from a completely noob to being really great at something. So just learning and eating up all those skills. That's another reason why. Also, I kind of found as a kid, we're always just kind of finding where's my place in life and where's my niche and who am I and those sorts of things. And I was never really into competitive sports and being competitive against other people. But what I find about getting out in nature and doing these hiking and exploratory things is you're really challenging yourself. So I don't think of like getting to the top of a peak to conquer the peak. It's more about conquering yourself and what you're capable of. Yeah, all the things that you're saying are things I completely agree with because I'm the exact same way. I never have been a big fan of competitive sports. I'm more interested in competing against myself and pushing myself than gauging myself against other people. I also 100% agree with you with the conquer. If there's anything you've conquered, it's your own shortcomings because you are never, ever, ever conquering nature. Nature (laughs) is allowing you to do what you did. If nature doesn't want you to, you are going to lose that fight. As a kid and trying to figure out yourself and what your capabilities are. And you know, most kids like lack a lot of self-confidence because you don't really know what you are or what you're about. So when I started getting out there in nature and I started hiking and then I started doing these amazing things like rappelling and doing big jumps into pools and stuff like that. I find that I'm just like capable of so much more than I thought I would be. So every time I learn a new skill and every time I get a little bit better, if that's at stemming or rappelling, it really feeds to my self-confidence. Like I become more self-confident and it gives you a lot more self-worth. I guess in like the day and age where everyone's talking about you have to have like this perfect image or something like that. And to me, it's like, it doesn't matter if you have your sunspots and your five pounds overweight. I can, my body can like get me through this canyon in these amazing technical places. And at the end of the experience, I go like, wow, my body is so amazing and it's imperfect. But like, I just go like, wow, that's so amazing. Like what my body can do. And it's not perfect to like the media standard, but I get a little self-love, I guess, out of that. Do you think that that competency and that confidence bleeds into your life outside of these environments? Yeah, you take it to the rest of your world. And when I take career risks and 
and career leaps and I have to go do things like public speaking that would have been scary before I'm like is talking in front of people really so bad or you know is it as bad as the canyoneering or rappelling I'm like oh you know I almost died last weekend and I still live so like this is nothing so yeah the, the confidence does carry over to I guess your normal life <laughs> one of the reasons for the existence of this show is the kind of things you're talking about which is it's easy for people to kind of look at all these activities as these frivolous things for privileged people to do but I sincerely think that even something on a less extreme for lack of a better word level than a lot of these activities could be so beneficial to people and could teach them so much about themselves mm-hmm. and just make them more capable more confident people in the end because I feel the same way as you where the me before this stuff and the me after this stuff is a different person and I like to think a better and more capable person yeah I'd say before like I didn't quite know my niche and then as I became more capable I just realized like I'm able to do so much more than I ever thought I could so I really kind of love that feeling and it's a way for me to kind of get in touch with myself and what you know my abilities are and I feel like throughout this growing process like I'm capable of so much more than I thought I could basically I'm the black sheep of the family right like nobody else is into outdoorsy things like I am it's been a completely individual pursuit I feel like to not get yourself too pigeonholed into an idea of this is how you have to be mm-hmm. if that makes sense yeah. when I start taking these risks outdoors and then I find out like wow I'm so capable of doing all these things I feel like it can contribute to me taking risks and my I guess normal life mm-hmm. if you will and understanding you know that risk taking process like I've definitely done that more with my career than I would have done before you know I think I would have played it more safe but once I've engaged in this risk taking process through my nature hobbies it definitely led over recently into my career goals where I, I have recently made career moves I may have not made before and really put myself out there I always say that I think the main focuses of life in general in regards to everything is life is basically revolving around managing fear and managing risk and what better way to learn how to do these things than to put yourself in fearful risky situations Mm -hmm. and find out how to cope with those things but then also how to sincerely manage them so that they're not that risky and at a certain point not that fearful right um that's like the biggest misnomer like when my parents talk about me and what i do my mom especially she's like oh you're fearless and i'm like that's not true at all when i'm doing you know something that's a little bit above my pay grade for the first time you know if i'm stepping up a level in a canyon i have butterflies and anxiety just like everyone does it's not about not having fear it's about recognizing that and managing that and that's a different aspect where i absolutely feel fear i would never consider myself fearless but i can recognize it and talk myself through it and just kind of understand okay well this is where this fear is coming from it's it's a life preserving mechanism but you have xyz skills that you're going to know how to complete i guess i kind of do a breakdown like of what i'm about to do and it'll just be like okay like you're scared because of this reason in jump canyon i'm gonna do a 30 foot jump yes i'm getting the butterflies and i'm like your body's doing a good job of preserving your life and telling you that this is a potentially dangerous situation but you know the right technique to enter the water and you know it's going to be okay you know that this is going to happen and it'll be all right you know it's about taking that plunge at that point there's definitely a big misconception about people being fearless and maybe reckless i definitely argue that it's neither of those things because the reckless people don't stick around either because of a horrible tragedy or just because people stop going places with them and the fearless people don't exist yeah that's a really good point on the recklessness that's what they think too the risk taking is so reckless and i'm like that's not true at all i feel like i am so calculated and i'm so cautious like i didn't come from any special place right Mm -hmm. i was like the shy super introverted independent little kid you know when i was small like i really loved the idea of adventure 
adventure, but it was inaccessible to me. So the thing that was accessible to me was like roller coasters because they were kind of extreme, but it was something I could participate in. So like as a kid, I loved roller coasters. I was obsessed with them, but I was also terrified. I never went on the big ones. I was mm-hmm. super scared, but like I would play the roller coaster sim games and develop these roller coasters and I was so into them and I'd watch all the specials on the geographic, you know, when they do those documentaries about like the biggest roller coasters and I was obsessed. So like roller coasters were kind of my first love in that regard, just because it was the first tangible thing I could reach out to as far as risk and adventure. It's funny, a lot of things that you've said during this show are very similar to things I'd say regularly or have even said on this show because I have a very similar background where when I was growing up, I was aware of the existence of things like climbing and some of these other things, but Mm -hmm. they were not things that people I knew did. They were not things that were available to me where I lived. And there are things I thought were separate from my reality for people beyond me and maybe things that would never be an opportunity to me. And it wasn't until I was much older that I found out otherwise and then my life changed drastically from that point on. Yeah, my first taste into that, I guess switching over from the normal side to the adventures thrill-seeking side, was skydiving. I did a a tandem skydive jump when I was 19 and I was in a sorority which no one can believe because I'm totally not the (laughs) sorority girl type. I would not have guessed you would Uh, have been in a sorority. I was in a sorority for a few years and so there was a guy in a fraternity who was a skydiver. And he was so hot. So yeah, he was pretty cool. And <laughs> he had arranged a skydiving trip. Like, hey, let's get everyone together. Let's all go tandem skydivers. I was like trying to be cool. And I'm like, I want to go skydiving. And I want to be a part of the trip. And so we planned this trip. And I was terrified. Absolutely terrified. Anyway, the trip ended up getting canceled. And I was utterly relieved. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, thank God I don't have to actually do this. Oh, how you have changed. <laughs> but then, you know, I'm trying to be cool. And I told my friend, I'm like, oh, I am so sad the skydiving trip got canceled I really really wanted to do it I can't believe it and I'm trying to play it off that I'm really cool and he's like oh well if you want to go skydiving let's go tomorrow he called your bluff (laughs) he did so hard so he's like okay I'll be at your house at 7am we're gonna go to Lake Elsinore that's where I did my first time yeah and so he was a skydiver so he jumped on his own and he's like you can go tandem and I'm like shoot okay I guess I gotta do this now but the nice part was it was overnight so I really didn't have any time to think about it. I wasn't too scared at the time. I was half asleep that morning and I remember I wasn't too nervous until right in front of the door where you're kneeling in front of the door with your tandem instructor behind you and he's doing the one, two, three count off and I think right before three I was like oh no and then he kind of (laughs) rolled us both out the door anyway. So that was my first taste with extreme adventure and the risk and having to put myself out there. In that moment of rolling out the door was really terrifying. And it felt totally different than what you expected, right? Absolutely. Like, I thought you're going to feel the feeling of falling. Yeah. You don't at all. Yeah, you don't get that feeling in your stomach. It's just... It actually, in a sense, kind of feels like how I feel when I fly in my dreams. Mm-hmm. And that I just kind you're of feel like you're levitating. Fighting. Yeah, You're levitating exactly. and the earth is oddly getting larger, but very slowly. <laughs> yeah, it's tiny. So I wasn't really into the free fall portion. I had these really cheap, terrible goggles that kept sliding off my face and then like the 120 miles an hour winds were just blowing into my eyes so the whole time I was like fidgeting with my goggles trying to make those work the free fall aspect I wasn't so much into but after the free fall and we pulled the cord and then we're flying with the chute open which is very similar to what you do now with paragliding yes I love that I love just floating around like a bird and that's when I knew I wanted to paraglide at the moment and paragliding I never did a tandem paraglide I just knew from having that previous experience I was going to absolutely love it so it's just a matter of just say 
saving up enough money to get all the gear and the training. So now that we've run through your entire life and looked into the philosophy behind what you do, why you mm-hmm. do, and got to hear about your sorority life before you were the adventurer you have become, we should probably go ahead and start wrapping everything up. What mm-hmm. I'd like to do at this point is have you share any online places where people can find more about you or organizations and other things that you would like to direct people to. If you on YouTube, I put little YouTube clips of my adventures. You can search through my screen handle, Pugfugget. That's P-U-G-F-U-G-G-E-T. You have to search with that in quotes because if you don't, you're going to get pictures of pugs and other things. <laughs> so you have to kind of put the quotations on each side to make sure you, you come up with my videos. Do you know offhand, say for instance, any of the shark conservation organizations or any of those other yeah. organizations you want to share? If not... I'll get those from you later, and people will be able to go to the website and find them. But if you remember any offhand, you can share those now, too. For the shark conservation, there is finsattached.org, and the rest I can get to you offline. So I'll definitely make sure to let everybody know where they can find those other things. And then the way I like to finish up the show is just leave it to you for any closing words, any final piece of wisdom you'd like to share with anybody, or just something that maybe we haven't spoken about yet that you think would be important to tell people. I've noticed with the canyoneering in the recent explosion of canyoneering population that it is now, I find like with so many of my adventures, I tend to do them all solo. Growing up as a kid and having those times in Colorado when I was like running around by myself outdoors, I did a lot of soloing adventures. It's definitely different when you're running things by yourself versus when you're running things with a group of people. I feel like when I'm by myself, I am acutely aware of what's around me. As far as your surroundings and your capabilities, I kind of find people think when you're by yourself, it's more dangerous because there's no one there to help you. I kind of argued the opposite way where I think groups are more dangerous because there's a certain false sense of security and complacency. Maybe distraction. And distractions. When I'm by myself, I am acutely aware of what's going on around me. When I'm, you know, rigging an anchor because I've done scuba and canyoneering by myself. There's no one distracting me. I'm just looking at the rigging. And so I feel like I pay way more attention to what's going on when I'm doing those things versus when you're in a group and a lot of people are talking and distracting you from what you're doing and you're not able to do those checks. And I feel like when you're by yourself, you're more acutely aware of that innate risk as far as I'm by myself and there's no one here to help me. So I feel like I'm very cautious and I'm careful about how I move and do things because I know no one's there to help where I feel like when you're in the group you don't pay attention to those details do you carry anything like an in reach or a spot or anything like that when you go solo I do have a spot that I borrow from time to time (laughs) typically I use a checking in checking out system I use a trusted friend and I'll say hey this is where I'm going this is when I'm leaving and this is when I should roughly expect to be back I usually try to leave a little bit of buffer time for self-rescue or you know this is the absolute call out time like if you don't hear me by this time that's when you, you know, mobilize the search party. So I use a, a, a check-in, check-out system with a trusted buddy. So Amanda says, stop having friends. Go out by yourself <laughs> only. It'll be a, it'll be safer for you. I think it's good for people to have those experiences, to really understand what they're capable of. I would definitely suggest, like, having solo trips here and there. Don't have to become a recluse like me. <laughs> I don't. But I think it's a great tool to have that experience. Because I, I noticed, like, when I started canyoneering, and this is kind of how a lot of people do it, you get out there, and I became 
became a passenger to my yeah. leaders and I just kind of observed what was going on around me. And I did that for quite a few canyons. And then I kind of came to the realization, what happens if something happened to my leader right now? What if they got hit by a rock and they got knocked unconscious? Like, what would I do right now? I think that's where I really changed as far as that learning process and wanting to get really good at the canyon is I realized like I can't trust that my leaders are always going to be there to take care of me. And so I think that's kind of what always has pushed me as far as canyoneering to always want to get better and improve was to be able to be self-reliant. I kind of feel like any canyon I go into, I should have the abilities to get myself out of it by myself for that reason of, you know, something happened to the rest of the party and I needed to go on and get down. Maybe I'd be the person to go call for help or get out of the canyon. Like I need to be able to do the rest Mm -hmm. of the canyon by myself. I kind of go into places with that mentality of being self-reliant and I think that's kind of like an important skill to not get too caught up in being a passenger too long. There was a bit of a message there, which is to become self-reliant and to make sure you're more than a passenger. I think self-reliance is super important in your canyoneering or any kind of experience. I think my overall message though is just to get out there. I'm so glad like that I never grew up with any kind of roles or like I was never like pigeonholed where girls don't do this or guys right. do that. And so I was always when I was a kid growing up with my brother, he did karate, I did karate. He did soccer, I did soccer. I kind of like that. I was never forced into any kind of role or particular role mm-hmm. as a kid. So that's probably why I guess when I grew up I do so many seems like male dominated sports Mm -hmm. because growing up with my brother that seemed like the typical path to follow but I don't know I guess just not forcing yourself into a certain role and just kind of exploring anything that seems interesting to you and one final thing to derail us since we're into the show since we talked about flying so much and flying is an important part of my life and my belief systems for your final word I have to get your thoughts on this how do you feel about caged birds caged birds it's kind of sad isn't it terribly sad it is is horrible (laughs) so my final words to everyone who's home is don't cage a bird don't take a thing that can fly and and exist in the sky and do whatever it wants and then force it to be stuck on the ground inside a tiny cage that's your final message don't cage birds right (laughs) and you can take that as a metaphor if you want all right and with that we will hike back down we will follow the light from your dog's collar and hopefully we'll hear more sounds of wild chimpanzees and lions and various other things off in the distance thanks for driving all the way down here from bakersfield i definitely appreciate you doing that and uh good luck when you drive back and thanks for being on the show And as a further example of how Amanda never sits still and continues to try to improve herself, here is Erica to read, in Amanda's words, an update. I signed up to take Emergency Medical Technician EMT1 course for spring 2018 semester at my local college. I will be taking the night course in the evenings after work to better understand trauma care and have that knowledge and experience to assist others should an emergency arise, considering all the risk potential activities we engage in. That begins January 2018. Might have mentioned it, but I will be repelling El Capitan again in July 2018. Also, the wildlife way station was affected by the recent fires and had to evacuate over 200 animals, but luckily they only had some minor structure fire damage and no animals or staff were harmed. And now it is that time. Time to go to our website, gogetoutside.com slash podcast. Look for this episode 60 with Amanda Kraft. 
And there you will find photographs, numerous photographs of her doing the things she does, and many links, her personal YouTube page, all the way to shark conservation, to diving, to flying, and many others as well. So head over to the website, take a look at those. And while you're at it, you may as well go ahead and contact us here at the show. Let us know what you like, what you don't. Go at ButcherBirdStudios.com is how you can reach us by email. Or if you prefer to leave us a voicemail, 818-925-0106. And please do your SRRSs. Subscribe to the show, rate the show, review the show, and share the show with someone you adore. The Go Get Outside podcast is produced and recorded by me, your host, Jason Milligan. This episode was edited by Griffin Davis with additional editing done by me and brought to you by ButcherBird Studios. Next time on the show, come back January 1st, New Year's Day. You've heard him mentioned earlier in this episode, and now it is time to hear from the man, the myth, the taco himself. Ryan Dacey. Come back New Year's Day 2018 and hear from Ryan Taco Dacey. See you then. <laughs>